0: It makes me laugh every time. I'm going to miss walking up to that little song. Uh, We are wrapping up our series uh, called Won't You Love Your Neighbor, where we've been looking at not the wisdom and uh, message of Fred Rogers, although his message was a good one, but where he got it from, the message of Jesus, the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Last week we talked about the cost of your neighbor. You heard from our pastoral resident, Joe Scavato. Didn't Joe do a great job? I'm so grateful that we have so many young and talented teachers and leaders uh, in our church family. And uh, I was excited for him to have that opportunity. Thanks for being here gracious and responsive as he preached the word and two weeks ago the command to love your neighbor the great commandment not the great suggestion or the great advice but the great commandment to love god and to love your neighbor and then we started back several weeks ago with the call in luke chapter 5 do you remember this story luke calling jesus calling the first disciples in luke 5 to follow him and we saw that the call to follow jesus is the call to love your neighbor they're not separate things because right after jesus calls them remember the miraculous catch where do they go They go out into the streets and love people. Healing of a leper, healing of a paralytic, and so on. The call to love your neighbor. One of my favorite things about this series has been the stories I've been hearing from many of you. They trickle their way in through uh, some of our uh, department leaders and other people in our staff. And I hear stories about moms organizing prayer events for their schools as they're starting for their teachers. I hear stories about single moms coming here and feeling welcomed for the first time and not ashamed and not alone. I hear stories about uh, rooted groups that are, we launched a few weeks ago where people are, for the first time, feeling safe to tell their story, even stories of brokenness and being loved as neighbors and welcomed as friends. I love hearing those stories because it tells me that this is not just theory, stuff that I say. I and mean, I love to preach the Word of God. I love to study and think about how God might uh, use His Word to impact our lives. But that's the whole point, not information but transformation, changed lives that we would live differently because of His Word. This week we're looking at the celebration of loving your neighbor, the party. Remember back to week one, we looked at Jesus calling his first disciples. I mentioned that a minute ago in Luke 5. You have your Bible turn to Luke 5. We're going to examine. There were the stories. So the first you have the story of the miraculous catch, then the call to follow Jesus. Then you have two encounters, the healing of the paralytic followed by, or the leper followed by the healing of the paralytic. We looked at those in detail. And right, there's a, there's a scene or an encounter we didn't cover And that's what i look at briefly here this morning. Luke 5, verse 27. This is the the last little scene encounter here. It's a second calling of another disciple named Levi, who gets his name changed to Matthew. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A couple of things about this little encounter here. Notice Jesus calls him while he's still sitting in his tax booth. Did you catch that? If you know the history here, tax collectors were not, they were traitors. They were sellouts to their own people, the faithful Jews, uh, Israelites, God's people. They were in league with the Romans, the oppressors. They extorted money from their own people. And he's sitting there doing the very thing that he shouldn't be doing, and that's when Jesus calls him. In other words, he doesn't have to clean up his act or get himself together before Jesus calls him. Jesus calls him out of the thing, out of his own sin. And what's his first response? He follows him. He leaves his tax booth. He leaves that, which was his old life. He leaves it behind. We've looked at that before. Follows Jesus. And his immediate response is what? What does he do? Throws a party. Did you catch this? Like the first thing he does, Jesus called me, me. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm an outcast. I mean, I'm rich, but nobody likes me. But he called me. I know. Let's have a party. And who does he invite? Not the respectable people. He doesn't have any of those friends. Tax collectors, sinners, and it says, and others. It's like all the people that you don't want to hang out with. He invites to his house and Jesus goes. Because Jesus likes to party. I don't know if you knew that or not. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Jesus likes to party. He goes. And and then the Pharisees look at this and they go, what are you doing? Why are you hanging out with them? No self-respecting rabbi or man of God would be caught dead with those people. And Jesus goes, oh, don't you know? I'm not here for the The healthy don't need a doctor, only the sick. I'm not here for the righteous, but the sinners. Who are the healthy and the righteous? Nobody. There are none, only those who think they are, which is Jesus' point. There are no righteous people, only God is good. These are the people that think they're fine. And that that story actually in, in Luke 5, that little scene, it foreshadows something that happens later in Luke. And that happens later in the whole story of God. It, happens, it, it points us forward to Luke 14. I'm going to read uh, a portion here in just a minute. This is a story within a story. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus, in this story, is invited to another party. Again, I told you, he likes the party. He's invited to a different dinner party. Only this time, it's not a bunch of sinners and ill repute's there. It's the home of a, a prominent Pharisee, a well-respected religious leader. Jesus gets invited to his house for a dinner party. It's, you know... All the the finery, all the niceties, all the all the it's it's all the finest people are there, and Jesus is at this dinner party. And in the course of this dinner party, he tells a couple stories about other dinner parties. It's really like a it's like a little wormhole, right? It's a story within a story within a story of dinner parties where he's actually at a dinner party. Let's read verses seven through eleven of Luke fourteen. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will both come to you you and say, give your place to this person. Then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now what's going on here? In these verses, Jesus is speaking to the guests at the party. When he noticed how they chose their seats. You ever go to a wedding reception, right? You, you get your little tag and you look for your number. You have your number, right? You, number, table 14, Jeff and Aaron Frazier. And you walk around looking for where it's 14. And then you could re- tell by where it's placed how important you are at that party. Can't you, isn't that true? <laughs> oh, we're over here by the bathroom. Well, that's nice, but it's far away from the buffet, right? <laughs> how far am I from the head table, right? You could tell, like, well, in Jesus' day, it was similar. Seating arrangements meant something, but they didn't have name tags and table numbers. They were assigned by the guest places. and said So basically, if you're sitting down Choose an intentionally low place. He's pointing out what was a societal norm. But he's using it, twisting it, turning it to illustrate a profound spiritual truth. He's like saying, you know how it works. You don't choose a place of honor, then you might be embarrassed. I mean, how embarrassing would that be if you sit right next to the host and he's like, uh, sorry, I mean, I like you, but not that much. You got to move, right? <laughs> choose a low place, then you'll be, you'll be honored in front of everybody. Oh, what are you, do, what are you doing down there? Come on up here. He said, you know how it works. You know what you do. He's pointing out what everyone there would have understood. And then Jesus turns it, and he, he uses it to illustrate a really profound truth. I'm calling this the paradox of humility. The paradox of humility. Verse 11 states it clearly. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This... This principle is throughout the Gospels and the the Scriptures. Dallas Willard calls it the law of inversion. You must lose your life to find it, right? You must die to live. The first shall be last. Jesus says these things that sound backwards. It's all the same basic principle, this paradoxical understanding of his kingdom. If you're desperately seeking affirmation in relationship to other people, you will be perpetually feeling unaffirmed. Lewis talks about this in, in a book called The Four Loves. C.S. Lewis, that is. In a book called The Four, we know, right? <laughs> the Four Loves. Those who, who seek friendship for what they can receive out of it can never have true friends, he says. For friendship is about something else. The shared love, the shared experience. If you're trying to extract from human relationships your own self-affirmation, you'll never get it. It'll never happen. Lewis writes, until you overcome the fear of being an outsider, you will always be an outsider. Well, how does that happen? So if you seek relationships not for your own affirmation, but for what you might do for others, how you might bless them, you find yourself affirmed in the process. This is the paradoxical principle of humility. It works entirely countercultural in our day, doesn't it? How many people can you think of that are on social media, in the news, that are intentionally humbling themselves? I've been working on it. I have a very short list. It is uh, zero, right? How many can you think of that are exalting themselves, building their brand, building their platform, trying to get followers, trying to make a name for themselves, which is not in and of itself always bad. But we live in a culture where it's the opposite of the paradox of humility, isn't it? I I met a uh, a guy who's a pastor of Mariner's Church in Southern California. His name's Kenton B. Shore. Anybody heard of him? Didn't think so. Church of 30,000 people. The, one of the most influential pastors you've never heard of. Never wrote a bestseller. Doesn't travel speaking conferences. He's conferences. You can't find him on you know, the circuit and doesn't have a giant Twitter following. And I sat in his home with a bunch of pastors, and he talked to us about leadership, spiritual leadership. And one of the guys that I was with asked him, you know, you're... You're leading this massive, influential church. Everybody else doing what you're doing has like a brand and a following and they're writing books, they're speaking. And he says, yeah, you know, I I had four boys and I had a wife and I had this big church. I just didn't have time for that. I decided that this is my place. This is my community. This is where God's called me. And everyone in his world would say, use that influence to build something for yourself. And he says, no, you know, I, And he's now retired and handed it off to somebody and nobody knows or cares. And I think that's beautiful, actually. Because God's the hero of the story. Not me, not him. We've got heroes around here like that. I think of two men in our own church. A guy named Eric Harris, who attends South Street Campus, who was our director of operation and chief financial officer for many years. Took an early retirement from the banking industry to come and work for the church. He worked for free for a, a year. Don't tell him I told you that. This is being recorded. Sorry, Eric. Right? And after him, Doug Kite took early retirement from Boeing to come and work for us, our director of operations. Both those guys are society says, you've worked hard. You've been successful in business. What do you do? You know, South Beach. I don't know. Myrtle Beach. Some, something with a beach in it. Right? Go golfing. Retire. Enjoy. Be comfortable. They came and worked harder than ever before for the church. Why? For the glory of God to bless us. And they have blessed us. The paradox of humility. Not exalting ourselves, but humbling ourselves so that Jesus would be famous. Let's look at the next section of the story, verses 12 through 24 of Luke 14 here. He said to the man who invited him. So he was talking to the guests. Now who's he talking to? The host. He said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is addressing the host and the social elites that were at the party. A little historical context here. The world of the first century in in, in and around Jerusalem, Israel, the Middle East, in Jesus' day of the first century, is not a democracy, it's not a meritocracy, it was a hierarchy. And so everything depended on who you know, what your social class was, your status, and who you knew in the next class up. So if you wanted something, if you wanted to move up in life, you need to know people that were a class above you. And the way this worked was largely through hospitality, getting yourself invited to their home or inviting them to your home. And if they came, they would reciprocate. It was culturally expected. And that's how you would get in good with the the in people. We do similar things today, but their whole social structure was based on this jesus points this out now when he says do not invite your friends or your or your family it's not a command like can you imagine if that was like a law when you become a christian you have to call your family you can never come over again we can't have dinner anymore right it's not what he's saying right later in verse 26 of chapter 14 he'll say anyone who does not hate mother or father sister brother does he mean hate no he doesn't mean hate he means if your allegiance if your love for god should make all other loves look like hate by comparison. He's not saying you hate them. He's not saying you can't have your friends and family over for dinner. He's saying, when you're my disciple, when you choose to follow me, you operate by a different principle, the paradoxical law of humility, and you don't invite people over for what you can get from them, but what you can give them. And therefore, it doesn't matter to you if they help you in your social status, if they help your career, if they're good for your image. In fact, you invite people intentionally over who can do none of that because you want to bless them. Because that's how you've been blessed by your Father in heaven. This is the power of invitation, not the power to improve your life or social network. It's a different kind of power. The power of invitation. You ever been invited somewhere and you were surprised you got invited? Well, they invited me? I got an invitation one time and it wasn't actually for me, I thought it was, it was for my daughter. We thought thought the family, they invited us? Oh, actually, no, 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 dad, you can't come. (laughs) Jesus is saying that his followers practice a different kind of hospitality. What an author named Rosaria Butterfield, she wrote, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, a great little book. She wrote, and she calls it gospel hospitality. So what is this? Intentionally inviting people into our lives who cannot pay us back and who we are not trying to get something from. Using our homes, our lives, and our resources to bless others, not using them to bless us. But you know the Greek word for hospitality? Hospitality sounds so weak in English, doesn't it? Like, what do you think of when you hear the word hospitality? Martha Stewart, right? Or home, like, home like channels. With, there, there are two kinds of people in, in the world. Those who have house envy and those who lie about it. Right? Everybody has house envy. How many of you haven't seen somebody else's home, either on Instagram or Facebook or somewhere, and you or the shows that are forever like House Hunters, and you think, oh, oh my, I can't even fix my bathroom. I'll never have a house like that, right? We, we are redoing one of our bathrooms. We have the same, my wife wanted to save the pink tile that's been in there for 35 years. We've been in there 20. It was in there when the house was built, you know, and she wanted to save those tiles like a, a memory of what used to be. I'm like, why would you save those things? He's saying here, the Greek word for hospitality is very important. It doesn't mean like, you know, entertaining. In fact, the word is, it, it's, it's philozenia, philo meaning brotherly love and xenia meaning the stranger. You've probably heard of the word xenophobia thrown around these days. It's the opposite. It means love for the stranger. That's what the Greek word for hospitality means. Love for the stranger. Who are the strangers? People different from you. Christ is... in calling us to love those different from us, to welcome them into our homes. Again, Rosario Butterfield says, welcoming strangers as friends so that God might make some of them family. I love that phrase. Hospitality is welcoming strangers in as friends so that God might turn some of them into family members, in the family of God. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we're called to do. This is as much an attitude as it is an action. Because, you know, generally speaking, I think people are, they're loved into belief in Jesus rather than argued or preached into it. Do you think that's true? I mean, I'm a preacher. I think preaching matters. You know, I hope you still come, right? But generally speaking, people are loved and invited into belief in Jesus, not argued or preached into it. So inviting people to church, posting scripture on your Facebook page, sending people sermons and books, that's all good. But it pales in comparison to inviting them into your life, into your home, into who you are, getting to know them. In fact, those things have more power when they're accompanied by that kind of invitation, the power of invitation. That's how God designed it. That's how we are. Because Christ is really the host when you invite somebody in. If Christ is the center of your life, then when you invite someone into your life, you're inviting them into the center where he is. He's the host. Three specific categories of people to invite, welcome, and love. First, other Christians. You might think, well, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. They're not strangers. Yes, there are lots of strange Christians. Did you know that? There are lots of them. Some of them are here today. You look around the room. How many of you, just look around right now. I make you do this from time to time. I know it's awkward for you, but it's fun for me. Look around the room. Do you, look around the room. Some of you are like, I'm not doing it, (laughs) right? Right. How many of you see people you don't know in the room today? Yes. They are, in effect, strangers to you. I I did a membership class last week. Some of the people that are newer to our church, some that have been around a while, taking a step of membership. And when I hear them say things like, I love that this church is welcoming. You know what makes us welcoming? You know what makes this welcoming? It's not me standing at the door. You know what it is? It's you. You make this a welcoming place. There's no program or philosophy or special thing that I could say. It's you welcoming each other. So the first place to be welcoming and hospitable and loving, be that are different from you and stranger than you, strangers to you, is, is your brothers and sisters in Christ right here. The second is your actual neighbors, those that you live and work next to. We've been talking about that. And the third is, clearly in this story, the poor. I mean, they have to be included. It's not just metaphorical here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 tells us, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers because by so doing, some have entertained angels without even knowing it. Referring back to Genesis 18 when Abraham did that. There's spiritual blessing in it. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was a slave trader. Some of you will know his story. He writes about this text, he said one would almost think this passage was not part of the Bible when Jesus says don't invite your family and friends over. I don't think it's unlawful to entertain friends or relatives, but if these words do not teach us that in some respects our duty is to give preference to the poor, I am at a loss to understand them at all. So, your fellow Christians who are strangers to you, welcome them in to your life. Those you work and live near, welcome them into your life. And the poor Welcome them into your life. Now, some of you are feeling like this giant burden. Like, I don't have room for all these people. Doesn't mean all of them this afternoon. But start to be the kind of person who looks to, for ways to welcome people into your life So, what, for what you can do for them, not for what they can do for you. Expect and get nothing in return. The next story Jesus tells in this exchange during dinner is in response to a statement made by one of the honored guests. Verse 15 He said also to the man who had invited him, excuse me, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. This is an interesting st- statement. The guy says, blessed is the one who eats the bread in the kingdom of God. He's referring to the great feast at the end of all history when God returns and establishes peace and joy and all suffering is wiped away and all of his people fellowship at the great banquet with God at the end of time. And this man says, blessed are all who eat the bread in the kingdom. He pretty, it's pretty clear he thinks he's going to be there. He thinks he's going to be at that, eating that bread at that banquet. And I don't think Jesus is so much rebuking him as he's saying like... I think he's at, remember he's at dinner. I think he, Jesus is saying, well, since you brought that up, let's talk about that banquet. And let's talk about who's going to be there. You might be surprised at who's going to be there. And then he launches into a story. He tells a story. He's saying that his followers here are doing something unique and different in this account. The story he tells is very important to notice who are the ones that, 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 that don't show up at the king's feast. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20 You'll see on the screen, verses 18 through 20. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And the other said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And the other said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) We'll get to that. <laughs> now, now, it's not as if these people are, are, are like getting a last-minute invitation and they already had plans. They had been invited, saved the date, RSVP'd the whole, the whole nine yards. And now the time for the party has come. And it's a big party. It took time to prepare. And he sends his servant to say the time has come. And they give these excuses. Oh, I got a field. I got oxen. I've got a wife. I can't come. It's very important to see Who's not coming and why? Look at their excuses. First of all, the guy who has a wife, you should bring her to the party. What's wrong with you, buddy? (laughs) You won't have her for long if you behave that way. Notice that all these excuses tell us something about these guys, these men, these people, who are making them. Do you notice what it is? What kind of people buy fields, have teams of oxen, and you know, have families. Those who are doing fine in life. Did you catch that? Who are these people? They own property, they own businesses, they have families. These are the prosperous, these are the people who are doing well, these are the upper middle class that are not showing up to the banquet. This is us. Think about that. My 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 land and property and possessions my business responsibilities, my family responsibilities. These are the things that are keeping them from coming to the king's feast. What is Jesus saying here? Pay attention now. The social elite are saying, blessed are all who eat the bread in the kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm glad you brought that up. It was a man who had a great banquet. And you know who didn't show up? Those whose lives were doing just fine. How many of us, how many of you, would say, you know what? The stuff that should be the most biggest blessing in my life is sometimes the stuff that distracts me the most, that keeps me from coming to God. That keeps me from coming to his table. Jesus is making a very profound point that's easy to miss here. This brings us, this is the tragedy of rejection. It's the tragedy, the tragic irony, the blessings of God. God. The blessings of the king in our lives become the things which prevent us from coming to the king. They ought to be the things that draw us. When you think about it, how lame are those excuses? Last, the beauty of the feast. The beauty of the feast. In this story Jesus told, how does the master here respond? He sends his servant out, right? He sends out his servant to get others. Let's read verses 21 to 23. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled." Notice the master does not say, go invite them. This is important. It's easy for us to miss in our culture. Because they would never have said yes to such an invitation. Why? Because in that culture, they could never have reciprocated. And it was required. If you get invited to a great party, you have to do the same thing in return. They could not. Why? Where does the master say to find these people? In the streets? In the lanes? In the alleys? In the hedges? Right? These are not people who have fields who have oxen, who have families. These are people who don't have homes. Go find the people nobody else is inviting. And don't invite them, bring them. Like, not capture them against their will, right? But compel them to come in. Just bring them. Come with me. Where are we going? I'll tell you later. You're going to love it. Come to the table. Come to the party. Come meet the king who loves you. He wants you there, but I I can't give anything back. That doesn't matter. He wants nothing from you other than you at your presence. But I could never possibly repay it. That's kind of the point of the gospel is you can't repay it, and he gives it to you anyway. Only come. Only come. Who doesn't come? Those who are seeking joy and fulfillment and life and pleasure in their stuff, in their business, in their family. Who shows up? Those who don't have those things to seek it in. This is what Jesus means in Matthew 5 when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning the poor in spirit are the only ones who get it. You can be rich in material and still be poor in spirit, but it's less common these days. If you seek fulfillment and joy in business, in possession, in family, in significance, you'll never find it. And you'll miss out on where it actually is. At the king's table. This is what this great image of the banquet is really all about here. It's what it's really telling us. It's the invitation that says you're in. It's the table that says, I want to fill you with joy. It's the home that tells you you belong. Do you have little memories or things that remind you of home? Do you have... I don't mean your home that you live in now, but I mean, are there certain times and memories you go back to, you go, that's home to me. My wife has a couple of those. For me, one of mine is when I was, my, my, my kids also have this. We w- used to have these, we called them Frazier Family Fall Fest. Nice alliteration, huh? At my parents' house in McHenry County. Mom would make chili. We'd have a fire out in the side of their yard in the back and kind of near the woods there. The kids would run around with marshmallows and sticks and poke each other. You know, it's good stuff, right? We'd sit around in our folding chairs and just... Be together. I know you can idealize these things in your minds, but to me, that's like a longing for something. That's home to me. Do you have those? Do you have those memories? Like, that's home to me. Or even if you don't have those and you ache for one, we all have a longing for home, for place, for acceptance, for joy, for I fit here, I belong here, I'm in here. This is what the table of the king actually means. This is what the banquet is really about. What it's all about. Lewis writes in an essay called The Weight of Glory, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, for our true home, we find ourselves in it even now. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in every one of you, the secret which pierces with such sweetness in intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. The beauty, the memory of our own past, these are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. That home envy you have, that longing for place, that's about something Lewis is saying, and Jesus is talking about it here at this table. The table of the king is, is talking about that deep desire to be accepted, to be welcomed, to belong, to find joy. And you can find it nowhere else but at his table. That's what it's about. And who gets in? Those who see it and recognize it. Jesus calls them the poor in spirit. Those who stop chasing it in all the wrong places. This points us to where the story is ultimately going in Revelation chapter 19. Verses 6 through 9. We call this the great wedding feast of the Lamb. The, The whole story, by the way, of loving God, loving your neighbor, it's headed somewhere. You know where it's headed? You can probably guess. What does Jesus like to do? Say it. Party. Sounds awkward to say in church. What does Jesus like to do? We're headed for a party, friends. Let me read to you how it ends, how the story ends. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those. Remember what the guy said in verse 15 of Luke 14? Blessed are those who eat the bread in the kingdom. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about, but it's coming. And it's not just the respectable people who are going to be there. In fact, many of them will miss it. People are going to be there. And some of you self-righteous folks are going to be like, she's here? He's here? Yes. Why? You've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb through Christ. And what what the table is, sometimes we get very somber and reflective and confess our sins, which we should, but this should also be a celebration. We're going to end this morning with communion, the table of the king. We are quite literally rehearsing together what's coming, the party, the great party with friends and neighbors and strangers who God has made family members i'm going to pray and then we're going to pass the elements you'll get two cups stacked together hold them in your hands those simple little plastic cups are symbols of the party that is to come once we've all been served i'll come back up and i'll lead us through the celebration of god's love for us together let's bow god you are a god of joy and celebration and beauty And we all have a longing deep inside for belonging, for acceptance, to know that we fit, that we're we're home. Forgive us for trying to find that in our career, even in our family. Remind us as we prepare to come to your table, there is only one place in all the universe where that longing can be truly fulfilled. And it's in you, Jesus. It's in a relationship with you, our King seated at your table, having you smile at us and say, welcome home. Speak to us now as we prepare our hearts to come to your table. We pray in your name. Amen.